Our Old Testament reading from Isaiah. The earth mourns and withers, the world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Our New Testament reading and sermon passage from 1 John. And now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is one of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to those of you who are watching online. We're glad that you are watching. My name is Jamie, one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, an extra warm welcome. We're glad that you're visiting with us today. Now, if you think of a good athlete or even a good musician or a good actor, you begin to ask the question, what, how did they get so good? Uh, they got good by practicing and often they practiced a lot. Now when you think of a good Christian or even just someone that you look up to, how do they get good? How do they get wise? How do they get righteous? Today we continue to look at 1 John, this book that we're looking at, and what we're seeing today is practicing righteousness is not a matter of trying harder or doing more. Instead, what we see is that it comes from fellowship with God. As we know God, as we walk closely with God, then our lives are changed and we begin to live differently. Today we'll have three points. We're going to look at the call for righteousness. The second thing we'll look at is the heart of righteousness. And then third, practicing righteousness. Our big idea is this, because Jesus is our righteousness, we are to live righteously. 
Before we go further, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you who are our righteousness, we ask that you, by your spirit, would so work in us that we would see you for who you are, but also for who you have made us to be as children, righteous children of the living God. And God, what we want is through this time that we would be different and that we would live more rightly to give you glory and to draw fame and attention to your name that is above all names. So Jesus, would you glorify yourself now? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the first point is the call for righteousness and very simply, everyone, everyone is called to a righteous life. Now in one sense, righteousness is a measure of one's standing before God. In other words, uh, do you meet the righteous or right requirements of God's law or not? Look at chapter 2, verse 28. There the apostle says, little children abide in him so that when he appears, talking about Jesus, you will have confidence and not shrink back in shame at his coming. So remember, he's using this word abide, and abide means to obey, to follow, to continue closely in relationship with. And in 1 John, he's been using the terminology of walking with him, walking with Jesus side by side, not straying away from Jesus, basically saying that you have a right relationship with Jesus. And then in this verse, look, he says he's going to appear. He's talking about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus will come on judgment day to judge, as our Apostles' Creed says, God, you know, here is Jesus, and Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. That Jesus. The same Jesus in Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus talks about the parable of the sheep and the goats. Remember, there Jesus says, there are those who will do his will, the sheep, and there are those who do not do the will of God, the goats. And Jesus comes as the judge, and he separates the sheep from the goats, and as it says in verse 46 of that particular chapter in Matthew, the goats will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous will go to eternal life. So what John is saying here is if you have a right relationship with Jesus Christ, you do not sh uh, shrink back in shame. You have confidence on the judgment day. You're safe, if you will. You have assurance that your guilt of the sins are covered because you're found righteous in Christ before God. So that's one sense of what it means to be called to a righteous life. Now another sense, though, is this. It's a lifestyle that we are to live a right life before God and even before others because that's part of who we are. Look at verse 29. He says, "If you can have assurance that if you practice righteousness, then you are born of God. What he's saying is righteousness is evidence that you belong to God, that you are somehow abiding with and in God in a genuine way. What that says then is Christians are to seek to make righteousness part of all aspects of their life. There's not to be one part of your life that is not righteous, if you will. The Lord Jesus Christ, he talks about this when he preaches in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five and six. 
In chapter 5, verse 6, he says, very familiar, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Chapter 5, verse 20, your righteousness is to exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes. In other words, your righteousness is to be better than even the religious leaders. Chapter 6, verse 33, we are commanded to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness above all other things. And so this righteousness is very important and God calls us to a righteous life. And yet what we need to see is you cannot get this righteous life on your own. So that brings us to our second point, the heart of righteousness. Righteous practice comes from a righteous heart. And a righteous heart is one that is only changed by God. Let me say that again. Righteous practice comes from a righteous heart, but only a heart that has been changed by God is a righteous heart. Now this should not be surprising. What we do comes from the heart. In Matthew chapter 15, our Lord Jesus was asked by some religious leaders and they were asked, why don't you wash your hands before the meal? In other words, um, you're not really following the traditions of the religious leaders. You're not doing what is normal. Uh, your hands are defiled, if you will, because you didn't wash them the way according to the tradition. And so Jesus, seizing this opportunity to talk about a heart truth, says this. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this is what defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. You've heard it said we are to practice what we preach. You've heard that before. That means our actions are to align with our words. Otherwise, we're hypocrites. I think the greater truth, though, is this. Uh, we really practice what we believe. Uh, your actions show what your belief system is. And so if you are one who is consistently showing through your actions hate, then it would be fair to say that there is hate deep within your heart. If you're one who is consistently showing love in your actions, then it's fair to say that there is love deep within your heart. But it even goes with inaction. If you are one who consistently shows actions only for yourself and inaction toward others, what you're then saying is, I am important and you are not. So even inaction can demonstrate love and hate. Now, the Apostle John in this letter that we've been studying through and reading, he's already established that none of us are righteous. Remember chapter 1, verse 8? If you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. Chapter 1, verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we even make God a liar. What he's saying is, is we deny what God has been saying throughout all of the scriptures, and what God has been saying is, we're fallen. We're sinful. We're under the curse. So then follow what's going on here. But if God requires righteousness from us, and yet we are not capable of righteousness because our hearts are not righteous, but instead corrupt, sinful, and broken, and even our very actions demonstrate that, 
What is our hope? In other words, it seems like God is setting us up for something that is completely impossible. And it is impossible apart from God. And this is the good news. God himself comes and changes what we could not. God himself comes and changes our heart. God makes righteous what we could not. Look at verse 29. If you know that Jesus is righteous, you can be sure that everyone, anyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Now when he says, if you know that Jesus is righteous, he's not talking about facts. He's actually talking about a relationship. He's not talking about, hey, you know, I know that Jesus is a good person. When he says, if anyone knows Jesus, he's actually making what we call a faith statement or a a trust statement. Basically what he's saying is, is when you know that Jesus is your righteousness is that you're trusting that Jesus is your righteousness. Jump down to chapter three, verse five. There the apostle writes, Jesus has appeared to take away our sins and in him there is no sin. Now theologians, they talk about what's called the passive and active obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. The passive obedience of Jesus is this, that Jesus died on the cross to pay the full penalty of our sins. Our sins are forgiven because Jesus has taken them away completely. As far as the, you know, the east is from the west as the psalm says it. And what that's saying is, is all of our unrighteousness, all of our sin, all of our guilt, that has been put upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so our guilt is removed. We are now declared clean. We are now innocent. The curse that was due our sin, Jesus Christ, if you will, passively received that upon the cross. And so he became the curse on our behalf. Now follow. If all that Jesus did was to die for our sins, then we truly are innocent and we are guiltless, but we are not righteous. Follow. Because we have not done anything that the law requires of us. See, the law of God requires righteousness. And the law of God requires living out that righteousness. And so Jesus comes and he takes away our sin, but yet we are not righteous because we have not done the law. And so this is why the theologians then talk about Jesus' active obedience. The whole life of our Lord Jesus was actively obeying the law of God, even the will of God, even to the point of death and death upon the cross. That's why we say Jesus is sinless. Jesus is perfect. If you will, Jesus is righteous in the truest sense because he has always lived a right life. And so when a person has faith in Jesus, that faith is saying, Jesus, you earned a righteousness that I could not. You lived the law that I did not. And Jesus, you give me your righteousness. So the Bible says is that Jesus died for our sins. He paid the righteous demands of the law because we broke that law. But then also Jesus lived for our righteousness. He lives the law's demand perfectly on our behalf. And so we do not get a righteous heart by doing more, by trying harder, 
but we get a righteous heart as a gift from God. And this is called grace. Now what John is saying here is when we believe, the Holy Spirit comes and changes our hearts. In fact, that's why we believe. He did it first. And then the Bible says, we're born again. We're born again. The old is gone. The new has come. We are now righteous in Christ. And it changes the way in which we live. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. All who hope in him, they purify themselves as he, Jesus, is pure. So that leads us to our third point. Practicing righteousness. Now in chapter 3, verses uh, 4 through 10, we see this contrast between righteousness and sinfulness. In fact, he says sinfulness is like lawlessness. Look at the end of verse 4. This very simple definition. What is sin? Lawlessness. Meaning you have failed to do the law of God. You have failed to love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And you have failed to love others as you even love yourself. Then he goes further. How can you tell who is a child of God and who is a child of the devil? Hard terms, but that's what he uses. How do you know? The one who practices righteousness. So... Someone at this point might say, okay, I see where you're going. Let's just practice some righteousness. I'm going to read the Bible some more. I'm going to pray some more. I'll do some more church stuff. I'll even give some more money. In other words, I'm going to do more God stuff. That's what God's really wanting. Now, on the surface, I say that actually seems right. Because after all, you know, if you want to be a really good athlete, what do you do? You do more reps. You do more practice. If you want to be a good musician, what do you do? You go to the studio and you practice more. You do more. You you practice a lot. So in a Christian sense, that certainly seems right. It's, It's actually good to read the Bible. It's good to pray. It's good to be active in your church. It's good to give your money. So in one sense, it's actually good to do more. Yet, you can do these things without a truly changed heart. Hear what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. So going back to the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before others to be seen. He says, you will have no reward from your Father if that's what you're doing. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others to be seen. You can do more and still fall short. You can try harder but it will not be the right thing because it's not for show. So what we're seeing then is practicing righteousness is first a matter of a heart and then it is action. Again, what is John saying here? John is saying the more you practice abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you see more righteousness being practiced in your life. Putting it differently, The more you seek to have fellowship with God, the overall theme of this book, the overflow of that relationship is righteousness being lived out. Now, where do we see this in the text? You know, it's one thing to say it, but we need to see how this is actually supported in the text before us. In the text, what we see is this, you know, if you will, relational righteousness We see it in two things. Uh, First, it's Jesus' coming again, his second coming. 
And then the other thing that we see, though, is this call for self-examination of our own righteousness. So let's look at that first one, the second coming. There's two references to Jesus's first coming. Look at chapter 3, verses 5 and 8. But then there's three references to his second coming. There's two in chapter 2, verse 28. And then there's one in chapter 3, verse 2. What John is saying is, look, Jesus has come the first time. He's come for you to save you. What we just talked about, verse 5, he takes away our sin and he lived sinlessly. He is both our active and passive righteousness. But he says also, Jesus is coming again for you. He's coming again. That actually is the goal of redemption. Sometimes we think, you know, Jesus, he just came to forgive our sins. He forgave our sins so that he might bring us home to be with God forever. Now in our church, uh, Narthex, that kind of foyer area, we have an art installation and it's four panels. And the four panels are creation, fall, redemption, and then restoration of all things. I think we understand the first three of those panels. We get that God created all things, but we also understand that there's a fall. Things are not the way that they should be. But here we are, we're in a Christian church, and we understand that Jesus came to redeem all things. I find that we are those who don't often hope in that fourth truth, restoration. We often lose sight of what God is doing and that he actually wants us in heaven. Again, when we think about Jesus, oh, Jesus, he came to save me, almost like pity, like he came to take away sin because that's what God does, and that's true. But he saves us because he loves us. And because he loves us, he wants us. And because he wants us, he's coming again to take us home. There's a real goal here. Jesus comes to bring us home. In 1 John, the apostle uses the word children for us. And what that means is we are adopted into the family of God. This fellowship that we have with God is a real relationship. Look at chapter three, verse one. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we have called the children of God. Verse two, and we are children now. When Christ comes again, we will be like him. Isn't that powerful? What he is saying is, now God loves you. Now God has saved you. Now you stand in the righteousness of Christ. And yet sin still strains that relationship. And so there's a forward looking. Then you will have a full fellowship with God. Then there will be no sin that is marring your relationship with God. Then you will enjoy God perfectly forever and ever and ever. I love how the Apostle Paul puts it. In 1 Corinthians 13, that great chapter in love, he concludes by saying, now we see but in a mirror dimly, then we will see face to face. Now we know in part, but then we will know fully, even as God knows us fully now. When I was growing up, there was a billboard, and the billboard said, are you ready? Some of you who grew up in the 70s, you perhaps saw that same billboard. And it said, are you ready? And then in small print, Jesus is coming again. Are you ready? 
as a kid, I thought, okay, uh, that must mean I need to be ready because I don't want God to come back and find me messing up, okay? And what happens is, is I built in a real false theology because what I really thought the second coming is I need to be good enough. I need to show that I'm really worthy for Jesus coming back, and so I'm going to try harder. And then another kind of subset of that is, well, do I have enough faith? I need to have a really strong faith for Jesus to come back. And so both are actually works. And that's not the heart of Jesus coming again. And then a subset of that even is this. I thought, well, if Jesus is going to delay a little bit, because he hasn't come yet, what can I get away with? <laughs> you know, um, is there things that I really want to do that I think Jesus doesn't want me to do? And so this whole sense of second coming, sometimes we get it wrong. When Jesus says he's coming again, he wants us to be ready in the sense of, are you ready to enjoy him forever? See, second coming is judgment. God's gonna set all that is wrong right. But listen, second coming is love. Jesus is coming to claim that which he has bought with his own blood. He has bought you. And he wants you with him forever and ever. He is coming for you. This past Monday was Valentine's Day. And if you're wondering why your spouse has been angry at you this whole week, you forgot about it. <laughs> um, in all seriousness, though, for those of you who are married or even if you're like a teenager and, and angst love, um, do you remember when you were first in love? Do you remember the silly things you would do? The poetry, the sprucing yourself up, the wanting to just be absolutely right, that you would just go out of your way to serve the other person. You would just do all these things because you're in love. You're in love. And because you're in love, you would live for that person. And this is what the Apostle John is saying. Jesus, he loves me so much that he came for me. He came and he lived the perfect life that I did not live. He died on the cross to pay for my imperfect life, but he is coming again because he can't imagine heaven without me. Now that sounds rather just ostentatious, kind of like, would God really say that? He can't imagine heaven without me? Why else would he be coming to get you? See, that's the crazy love, using modern terminology, that's the crazy love that God has for his people. Do you believe that? Are you ready for that? See, that love then changes you. You want to live for him. You even want to die for him. And so you have this loving obedience for Jesus, and this is the righteous life that John is talking about, practicing righteousness because you're ready for Jesus. Now there's a second category here, this self-examination of your own righteousness. And when you're examining yourself, it's not just only your actions on the outside, you're examining your heart motives behind them. Again, chapter three, verses four through 10, we see this comparison of practicing righteousness versus sinfulness. And so some of the kind of easy application here is, friends, are there obvious sins that you need to put off? 
I find in pastoring the big three in a church is typically anger, greed, and sloth. Anger, particularly toward your family members. Outbursts. Or then the opposite is the silent treatment. Passive aggressiveness. Greed. Do you have a fear over finances? Are you fretful over your account? Do you spend on yourself even more than you spend on God and others? Sloth. You just don't put the kingdom of God first. It's your own kingdom that you put first. You live with this complacency. I'm gonna do just barely enough, what's good enough, rather than God, I'm gonna do all things because you've done all things for me. So as we examine ourselves, some obvious things. Is there sin that needs to be put off? But then also, are there some obvious spiritual disciplines that I need to put on? Should I be in the word? Should I be in prayer? Should I be enjoying the sacraments? What we call means of grace. Am I actively cultivating a spiritual growth? Do I have a willful willful pursuit of holiness? As we examine ourselves, a good question is this. In what I'm doing, is it something that a little child can imitate? If it's something that I don't want a kid to do, then you should not be doing it. If there's something that you want your kid to do, then that's what you're doing. Just a good, simple test. So our actions are things that we need to examine. But also we need to examine the heart behind it. See, it's more than just checking ourselves. Am I doing enough? Am I engaging in these means of grace? Again, the the means of grace are good. This is what God has given us so that we might know and enjoy and grow in his grace. Yet we need to ask the question and examine ourselves, is the pursuit of righteousness so that I might connect to Jesus in a deeper way or is it just to make myself look better? See, if the goal is you're just trying to look better or at least better than others, you've actually failed. And so here you are, you're doing more, you're looking good on the outside, but on the inside, it's corrupt. It's self-righteousness. What is our heart goal? Our heart goal is, Jesus, I want to be closer to you. I want to live like you. Look at verse 9. In fact, I can't keep on sinning. I just can't do it because that's, God, that's not what you've made me to be. You have made me to be a much-loved child. And so how could I keep on sinning? Now, at this point, a person might say, you know what, I understand. I get what you're saying, but these words scare me. These words scare me because I am the one who keeps on sinning. In fact, I find sometimes I practice sin more than I practice righteousness. Am I born again, or even worse, look at verse eight. Am I of the devil? Friends, the goal of examination is not to beat ourselves up, but to repent. Jesus calls us to repentance, and not just a one-time thing, but a daily repenting, that we're saying, Jesus, I turn to you. You are my hope, you are my righteousness, you are my life. And so if you are one who is refusing to repent, that is the concern. Because a refusal to repent is basically saying, God, I'm going it alone. And God says, that is the 
unpardonable sin. Anything else can be forgiven except that turning away from Jesus. So what is our hope? Again, chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus is the one who takes away our sin. In him there is no sin. He is our righteousness. That is our hope. Here it's a good time to remember our scripture memory verses. I'm going to ask the person to put up there. Do first uh, chapter 1, verse 7. We're going to read this out together. So this is one of the things that we're doing. So if you're visiting us, you're like wondering, what are we doing? We're memorizing uh, three passages in 1 John. And so the first one is chapter 1, verse 7. Let's read this together. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of his son cleanses us from all sin. And I really meant to say verse 9, so you do that one too. I got confused with 4-7. So verse 9, this is the one that you've been prepared for. All right. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his son, oh, that we might live through him. That's 4-9. Awkward moment here. We want 1-9. There we go. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you. You did the right job. I did the bad job. Friends, what is our hope? It's that. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He is faithful and just. Not me. He is faithful and just, and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And then as it says in 418, there is no fear in this love, for perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Here's the text, and it gives us assurance that God is love. How do we know? Jesus died for us, but also Jesus lived for us to make us righteous. What's the overflow of that love? We live righteously. We are to be what Jesus has made us to be, his children. A much-loved child who now loves God as he has loved me. Jesus is your righteousness. Now we are to live righteously. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, your words say that we are to walk in a manner worthy of you, our Lord, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. God, would you give us grace to abide in you, to turn away from practicing sin, that we would start first by repenting and turning afresh to you and then that we would practice righteousness more and more, not for show, but because of who you've made us to be, that we are pursuing these spiritual disciplines because you love us and we want to be closer to you. God, we offer these prayers in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We turn uh, from the word, from the preached word, we come to the word shown forth in the sacrament, uh, the sacrament of communion. Uh, and You know, as we think about Jesus Christ, the righteous, as John has described him, our advocate, is him that we come proclaiming by this meal together. 
Uh, for as often as we eat of it, we proclaim his death until he comes. This is the sacrament of communion, a holy meal that Christ prepares for his church to nourish them in their faith in a point in time when God shows his love to us, when he communes with us and us with one another. As John has been saying, the fellowship that we have with one another and the fellowship we have with God. This table isn't a, sac- a re-sacrifice of Christ. We're not uh, saying that the, the crucifixion must happen again. Uh, this is never spoken of positively in scripture. Uh, This is, in fact, just a reminder of Christ's real uh, physical body given for us, his blood shed for us. Uh, And in this meal, he truly does meet with us. I think one of the uh, most profound mysteries of this and some traditions who have falsely said that it is Christ's physical body and blood made manifest in these elements. No, it's actually his physical body and blood is here among us that we, in our flesh and blood and all, are joined mystically to him by faith. And so we come, the body of Christ is here. The body of Christ comes partaking of the food, uh, the the spiritual nourishment that Christ has given us. This uh, meal is for all those who feed on Christ by faith, who look to him and say, he is righteous in my place. His body and blood are shed and given for me. Uh, It's for all of us, of course, to examine ourselves and not to come in an unworthy way, the scriptures speak, uh, that if we come not proclaiming him by faith, we can come in an unworthy way and actually eat and drink judgment upon ourselves. We do not make a mockery of Jesus' sacrifice, living one way in stubborn and permanent right defiance of him, and yet coming and participating in this meal, we come rather uh, putting into action uh, that which we live by faith. So there's two ways to come to this meal. Uh, There's a way sinning, and there's a way sinning and repenting, right? All of us need Christ to feed us by faith. We don't come in our own righteousness. It's not for those who are without sin, otherwise no one would come. But it's for those who's in their sin have repented once again, if perhaps for the thousandth time, to turn again and say, Christ, you are my savior, I need you. So we're gonna take a moment to examine our hearts. I'll pray uh, to set aside these elements uh, that, that God would do so for us. And so let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you invite us to your table. You invite us into fellowship with you. And it is made possible through Jesus Christ, the righteous, our advocate and our mediator. We pray in his name that when we eat of uh, this bread and drink of this wine, uh, spiritually what would happen is we would feed in faith upon you, Jesus. We pray as we would taste your body and blood spiritually, that we would feed upon you, that we would grow in grace and grow in righteousness for your glory and your namesake. We pray, amen.